Okay, good morning, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. And before I start, um, today, sometimes I teach on the fifth Sunday. And today I'm going to be just sharing a little bit about what God's been teaching me over these last several months. So let's pray. Jesus, I pray for you, Lord, to speak to us this morning, Father. God, I pray that you would grow our faith in you, Jesus. God, I pray that we would be a church, Lord, and a people that trust you, Father. God, I pray that we would be willing to take risks for you, Jesus. That we would be willing to put ourselves on the line for you, Father. God, we thank you for this past year, Lord. We thank you for the coming year, Father. I pray that you would just work in us and through us. Amen. So many of you know my daughter Cassidy. For those of you who don't, she's nine years old. She's a pretty neat little girl. She has a very strong will. And about three years ago, when we were living at our house in West Hills, one day she woke up, she had a painful earache. She came into our room, she goes, Daddy, Daddy, my ear is killing me, it's hurting. Okay, we're going to take you to the doctor. We take her to the doctor. The doctor looks in her ear. He goes, yeah, you got a bad ear infection. So we're going to give you drops. And we're also going to give you some pills, some oral medication to help clear up the ear infection. We take her home. This was during the summer. And we were going to go in the jacuzzi as a family. So we fired up the jacuzzi. It's heating. So Cassidy, don't put your head underwater, right? Because you have an ear infection. We're going to go in. So she puts on her bathing suit. We get ready. We're walking out. Before she gets in, I remembered. Wait, Cassidy? You got to take your pills. Uh, no, I'm not taking my pills. No, Cassidy, the doctor said you have to take your pills. Your ear infection is not going to go away unless you take the medication. She looks back at me. I am not taking the pills. Cassidy, you are taking the pills. No, I am not taking the pills. She clenched her mouth shut. I can't pry her mouth open. And I start to get angry. No, you don't understand. You have to take these pills. No, I'm not taking the pills. I yell at her, Cassidy, you have to take the pills. Then I look over and my neighbor's staring at me. Thought he's going to call child services or something. But she refused to take the medication. It took about an hour. 
for her to finally wind up taking it. And I've thought about that. Why wouldn't she just take the pill? She's never gone to bed hungry. She's never been without a jacket when it's cold outside. She's never missed eating a meal. We provide for her. We take care of her. So why in that moment, when her good father, I'm pretty good most of the time, is saying, Cassidy, I want you to take this. This is the best thing for you. And she could stand there and look at me and say, no, 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 I am not going to take it. After everything I've demonstrated to her over a seven-year period. You see, in that moment, she didn't have faith in me. She didn't trust me. See, her fear of having to swallow the pill overwhelmed her to the point to where she couldn't move forward. She couldn't see past it. She was going to trust in herself. I'm going to do what I think is best. I'm not going to trust you. She didn't have faith. I'd like to share a story from Scripture that I've been meditating on about a man who had faith. He had the kind of faith where when Jesus said, here, take this, this is the best thing for you, he took it. He took a risk. This is in Luke chapter 5. Lucas, capítulo 5, verses 17 through 26. 17, 26. And I, I'd like to read this section of scripture first. In English, Nidia will read it in Spanish. And then I'm going to provide some background information before we start to, to dive in. I'm reading from the NIRV. It says, One day Jesus was teaching. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem. They had heard that the Lord had given Jesus the power to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a man who could not walk. He was lying on a mat. They tried to take him into the house to place him in front of Jesus. They couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd. So they went up on the roof. Then they lowered the man on his mat through the opening in the roof tiles. They lowered him in into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw that they had faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Now this healing, this healing occurred pretty early in Jesus' ministry. He had called his disciples together. He had started performing miracles. And in Luke, the miracle that he performed right before this was the healing of a diseased man with leprosy. And it says that after he healed that man with leprosy, the word about Jesus began to spread all over. 
Great crowds of people began to follow him. They heard about the power of Jesus, that he, this man had the power to heal. I'm not talking about lengthening a leg or making migraines go away. He could physically heal a leper. It was obvious. Now, there was no doubt that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they heard about this man, Jesus. They wanted to know, who is this man? Right, in verse 17 it says, The Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, from Judea, and from Jerusalem. Now let me explain to you what is going on here. I'm going to give you a little bit of background too of what it took to become a Pharisee or a teacher of the law back then. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law primarily came from the middle class. And the name Pharisee likely meant separated from the unclean or sinful. Right? There were men that would tuck in their flowing robes and as they were walking down the street, they would make sure they wouldn't touch a sinner or anybody who was unclean or paralyzed or diseased. And at a very early age, if your parents wanted you to go along this path, you would receive specialized training, educational training. And by the age of nine, you would have had to have memorized the book of Genesis. If you didn't pass that bar, you're out. Then by the age of nine, if you showed some promise, you'd move on in your training. And by the time you were 12, you would have had to have fully memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And you would begin to spend concentrated time with the rabbi. At the age 12. I could hardly get Travis to remember to brush his teeth. Just kidding, Travis. Now, by the age 16, those who showed real promise, there'd be another separation, would begin their formal training to be a rabbi. And they'd be able to debate the finer points of scripture from memory. And they were ready for serious study, focusing on various interpretations of the scriptures. And during that time, there were binding interpretations of scriptures that began to be developed by different schools. Now, when you were a rap, when you were a Pharisee, 
or a teacher of the law. And there is somebody who claimed to be the Messiah. There is somebody performing miracles. There was an actual process that they went through to figure out, is this real? Is this the Messiah or not? They were waiting for the Messiah. And the first stage was called the stage of observation. Where representatives of this ruling council of the Pharisees and teachers of the law would come and they would just observe. During this first stage, they wouldn't ask questions. They wouldn't speak. They were supposed to just sit there and observe and listen. After they observed, they'd go back to this council, the Sanhedrin, and they'd take a vote. They'd share what they observed and they'd vote. They'd say, is this something major that needs further investigation or should we just let it go? If they voted that this is major, we need to investigate, the Pharisees and teachers of the law would go back. And now they'd begin to question. They'd push back. They'd ask a lot of questions. The second stage is called interrogation. Now, if they found that you claimed to be the Messiah and you weren't, the penalty was death. So, the word had just gotten out about Jesus. And what we see here is they're in this first stage of observation, right? It says, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem. You have all the top scholars, the Pharisees, people who knew the law. They've memorized it. They've come from all over. We're going to observe and see who this guy really is. And Jesus is in a crowded room, right? It's filled with these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, knowing that, I'd like for us to think for a moment about the paralyzed man. About what that must have been like for him. You see, I imagine that he and his friends had heard about Jesus. They had heard that he can heal lepers. He can heal diseases. Surely he can heal a paralytic. They knew we got to get you in front of Jesus. It's the only way. We got to figure out how to get you in front of Jesus. So his four friends picked him up on his mat and carried him to the house that Jesus was in. They get to the front door and it's so crowded. There's so many people there. There's Pharisees, teachers of the law. There's no way to even get in the door. And what's worse, 
Is that the only way for him to get to Jesus? Would be for him to have to be lowered down through a hole in the roof in front of all of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, the people crowded in that room would have disdained this paralyzed man. They would have seen this physical defect as an expression of his unrighteousness, of his uncleanliness. They would have tucked away from him. They wouldn't want even their robe to touch this paralyzed man. He has to take a big risk. This is where his faith comes in. When they got to the door and they saw it was crowded, he could have turned around, right? We made an effort. We went all this way. We got to the door, but it was too crowded. Let's turn around. But he doesn't do that, does he? He and his friends climb up on the roof. They put the palm leaves aside. They dig through the sand and the tar. And they lower him down in front of Jesus. What is he going to do? What happens if I'm lowered down in front of Jesus in front of all these people that are sneering at me and judging me and he doesn't heal me? What is that going to be like? You see, he had to put something on the line. And what does Jesus do? In verse 20 it says, When Jesus saw that they had faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And then Jesus later heals him from his, he heals his heart, forgives his sins, and then he says, Get up and walk. The faith that the Jesus saw in that man was simple. Wasn't it? He just thought, I just got to get in front of Jesus. He hadn't memorized the Torah. He couldn't debate the finer points of Scripture from memory. He knew that he just needed Jesus. And that he was the only one that could heal him. His faith was simple. Doesn't mean it was easy. It's not complicated to follow Jesus. Now contrast that with the Pharisees. They knew the law inside and out. They spent years and years studying. They could debate little technical nuances. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones that everybody looked up to. But yet they missed the fact that they were sitting right in front of the Messiah, of the King. Later in that passage, they thought in their minds, this man's blaspheming. Está cometiendo pecado en blasfemia. 
You see, while the Pharisees were trying to figure him out, they were analyzing his every word. They missed the Messiah. Now, I want you to notice something. The Pharisees had complicated faith. All the things that they went through to get where they were. It's pretty complicated. It's pretty complicated to remember the Torah. I could hardly remember what I ate for breakfast this morning. But their faith was easy. Didn't really require much. You could try hard. You can learn enough. That's easy. Whereas the paralytic man, it's simple. He recognized, I just need to get in front of Jesus. I need to get in front of him no matter what the cost is. That's simple. That can be hard, can it? Yeah. Some of us can be like that paralyzed man. Where we see our need for Jesus. Where we know, I need to get in front of him. But once we get to the door, we see that the room is too crowded. We see that it's going to require something of us. We can stop. We can feel discouraged. And don't move forward. We get to the door and we see this is a crowded room. I've tried pretty hard. I did all this stuff. I'm just going to turn back. I know what that feeling's like. I know what it feels like to want to turn back. 2017, it was a hard year for my family. Probably one of the hardest years in, in the Brown household. So I had had surgery in 2016 been struggling you know with my back hurting and not being able to lift anything for all of 2017 my wife had two surgeries in 2017 and then on top of that we decided to throw a move in there we moved from a 2300 square foot house to a I don't know 900 square feet apartment. And getting rid of that much stuff will suck the life out of you. But we felt that that's what the direction God wanted us to take. We felt that He wanted us to take this step of faith and trust Him in the midst of all of this stuff. And once we moved in, people started throwing eggs at our balcony. 
And it wasn't so much that they were throwing eggs, it was the fact that we were so tired and you'd have to clean the egg yolk up every time. And then there's that uncomfortable feeling that comes when you're Señor Hombre Blanco Alto. Right, when everyone comes up to your waist because you're, you're just an outsider, right? And we wanted to go back. We wanted to undo this thing that we had done. So we moved in in May. In July, we just we went on vacation. We went to Mexico for a week. You know that feeling after you're away from home, even if you've had a great time, like it's just nice to come home sometimes, right? It's nice to sleep in your own bed. It's nice to be where everything is familiar. And so we're driving down the 101. I get off. We're going down Fallbrook towards Roscoe. I got the minivan loaded up, all the kids are there. We get to Roscoe. And I turn left. I'm driving to my old house. Right, I'm feeling good, I'm thinking about my bed. I had for, actually forgotten that we moved. As we're going down, the kids go, Dad, you're going the wrong way. you got to turn right, not left. And I just wanted to go back to my old home. You see, I felt like Cassidy in that moment. I felt like, you know what, God, I don't want to take this pill. I don't want to take what you have for me. I trust myself. I can make this better. I can make myself feel good. I can go back home. I wanted to turn left instead of turning right. Now, moving has exposed my lack of trust. And at the same time, it's shown me how much I need Jesus. How much I need to rely on Him. And I've been asking God God, increase my faith. How do you move out a place of wanting to move to where I'm going to trust Him fully? It's a funny thing how when you're reading Scripture and you're going through a hard time God will speak to you through his word and I had been reading through the parables of Jesus 
That day I'm praying, God, increase my faith. I came across in Luke 17 where the apostles actually asked Jesus, they come to Jesus and they say, increase my faith. I thought I better listen to this. So turn with me to Luke chapter 17 verses 5 through 10. Jesus actually responds in two parts. I'm just going to read, read verses 5 and 6 here. The apostles said to the Lord, Give us more faith. He replied, Suppose you have faith as small as a mustard seed. Then you can say to this mulberry tree, Be pulled up, be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, a mustard seed it's a small seed. I have a mustard seed right here. Can anyone see it? Can you see that? Nidia can barely see it right here. Ephraim, can you see this mustard seed? It's small. It's too small to see from far away. And a mulberry tree. What is a mulberry tree? A mulberry tree puts its roots down deep. It puts a tap root 50 feet down. And they're hard to kill. You chop down a mulberry tree, it's going to spurt right back up because its roots are so deep. What is Jesus saying? Why didn't Jesus say? If you have the faith the size of a coconut, then you can move a mulberry tree. You can see this, can't you? Ephraim, can you see what I have in my hand here? It's clear. Everybody can see this coconut. But no. He says the faith the size of a mustard seed. Notice how when they're asking their faith to be increased, Jesus doesn't say, no, no, you increase your faith by memorizing the entire Torah. You increase your faith by learning and knowing and growing and filling yourself with more and more and more and more knowledge. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say to grow your faith. You need to figure out is the rapture going to come before the tribulation or after? Is the church the new Israel or not? Is the earth young or old? He doesn't say that, does he? You see, what Jesus is saying is, you're asking the wrong question. That's not the right question to ask. He's saying it's not the quantity of your faith that matters. It's not how big it is. It's what's the object of your faith. 
Is the object of your faith Jesus? Is it object of your faith? Or is it yourself? Or is it your knowledge? Or is it any number of other things? You see, God is the one that moves mulberry trees. Doesn't depend on the quantity of our faith. But on His power. Now, in knowing this, this has helped me. It's helped me not to worry about my faith and be inspired to trust in God's power. And then Jesus goes on and he shares a parable to help encourage the apostles, which was confusing to me at first. We discussed this in our household community group. And I've studied it some more. And it's encouraging to me. So let me read verses Luke 17, 7 through 10. In English, and then Nidia will read it in Spanish. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. And suppose the servant came in from the field. Would you say to him, come along now and sit down to eat? No. Instead, you would say, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready. Wait on me while I eat and drink. Then, after that, you can eat and drink. Would you thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? It's the same with you. Suppose you have done everything you were told to do. Then you should say, we are not worthy to serve you. We have only done our duty. What in the world is Jesus saying here? I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I was a little bit confused. Now, in this parable, right? The owner represents God and the servant represents us. Now, the reason the owner doesn't thank the servant is because no matter how much the servant does, he can never, ever, ever give the master more than what he deserves. The slave can never give grace to the owner. The master still doesn't owe him thanks. We are always in debt to God. No matter how much you do, no matter how much you try, no matter how much you learn, you can never repay what God's done for you. We were never meant to. When we've done all that we can do, God still owes us nothing because we're not worthy. So what's the point? The point is, is that no matter how much you accomplish, no matter how hard you try, no matter how successful you are, 
You're still 100% dependent on God's grace. Do you want to increase your faith? Get rid of everything else. Stop thinking you can gain His favor. Stop thinking if you can just study the Scriptures enough. If you can just figure out what He's saying. If you can just try harder, then God's going to bless you. It's all grace. Every single one of us is 100% dependent on God's grace. You see the paralyzed man? He didn't have any other options, did he? Where is he going to go to get healed? There was nothing left. Your faith has to be fully and completely in Him. You have to be 100% dependent on Him and then you're going to have faith that could move a mulberry tree. We need to recognize that we need Him. And only Him. Now, I want you guys to notice a couple of things. In the parable of the paralytic, in verse 20, notice this. It says, When Jesus saw they had faith, it didn't say, when Jesus saw the paralytic's faith. He said, when Jesus saw their face, he saw, he saw the faith of the paralytic and his four friends. He saw this collective faith. He was in this with other believers. And then when we go back to Luke 17, in the NIRV, it, in verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, Give us more faith. In the ESV, in other translations, it says, Increase our faith. This was not an individualistic thing. As we were coming back, and I made the right turn instead of the left turn, after I turned the car around, we parked our minivan in front of the park, in the parking lot there, because we have to unload. And as we're unloading, I walk into the foyer, kind of that main area. And I looked at the mailboxes. And I had noticed that they had put my name on the mailbox. Brown. And I thought, that doesn't look right. 
Why is my name here? What am I doing here? And then I realized something. Look at all the other names around my name. Richie. Papanastos. Fuller. Garcia. Perez. Bailey. See, I realized I need these people. I need you. It's not just my faith. This is our faith. See, I need these people to bring me to the foot of Jesus when I can't move. Because I can't get there myself. You need a shared faith with brothers and sisters because when you can't move, somebody has to pick you up and carry you to the foot of Jesus. We should be growing in our faith together alongside one another. My question to you this morning is this. Is Jesus the object of your faith? Is he? If he's not, then all of your knowledge, everything you do, everything you're trying to accomplish, it's worthless. It's worth nothing. It won't do anything for you. Do you recognize that you are 100% dependent on God's grace? Are you 100% dependent on Jesus, on the forgiveness that he has for you? Or not? And in our individualistic society, are you willing to grow your faith together with the church? To pray together? To bring each other to Jesus' feet? This is how our faith grows. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that faith doesn't need to be complicated, Lord. That it's not about achievements, Father, or accomplishments, Father. But it's about having you as the object of our faith, Father. It's about trusting in you, Jesus. God, help us to be more like you, Father. God, I pray this coming year that we would seek after you and only you, Father. God, I pray that we would have faith, God, that could move a mulberry tree, Father. Because you're working in us and through us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.